0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you again. Um, happy middle of July. I don't know what the occasion is. Um, yeah, it was it the 9th. Happy July 9th. Um, this Sunday what we're doing is we're starting a new series here at Revolution called Stories We Tell. Um, If you've been around a while, you'll recognize it's actually the third time we've done this. Um, We run this series every other summer. So on odd summers, (coughs) we're making a 2025 plan. Um, Our last time out, 2021, we called this series, More Stories We Tell. So we called it Stories We Tell and More Stories. And for a moment, I thought we would definitely call this version, Even More (laughs) Stories We Tell. But it was pointed out to me by the preaching team that this was gonna get ridiculous and if we weren't careful, we're going to end up in like a Fast and the Furious movie title kind of scenario. And nobody like, is looking for that. Um, I am, because I think more stories, more furious would be like a great series title. <laughs> but I'm going I'm to hold that back. So um, if you are new to Revolution, since the last time we did this, um, what is this series about? Well, the short version goes like this. One of the hallmarks of our Bible is that when taken as a whole, um, it is less of a manual or a guidebook for a faith, which may be how um, you've, you've thought about it before, how you've encountered it before. It's less that than it turns out to be a collection of, or brace yourselves and use uh, upsetting words here, a collection of myth-building literary narratives. Now I'm gonna be real careful here with how we're using this word, right? So when I say the word myth, what I, what I am not doing is I am not making any sort of claim here about the historical actuality of the events. Your mileage on that may vary depending on who you are and what you believe, but getting into whether the things in the Bible did or did not happen isn't the point of this series. Instead, what I'm getting at by using that word is this, that these stories – when we put them together, build a bigger picture, not only of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel, but also about a God, the God, who has chosen and established those people. The myth is the story like above these stories, that all of these stories are in their own ways pointing up to and building up. Because what we know about God, we know first through these depictions of him in the stories of Hebrew history and literature, the books of the Old Testament. And what we believe about ourselves as human beings in terms of what we're like and what our big problems are and what God plans to do about those problems. What we know about that stuff is also rooted in these same stories and so although it might be interesting to explore the archaeology and to look for proof of which things happened and when my big point today is that the good work that good work is separate from the work that we all have a chance to do when we engage these stories as windows into these bigger beliefs We can certainly wonder about how plausible or implausible something like a worldwide flood might be, but I would argue that proving it happened doesn't really do much for me in terms of my walk with the God I believe in. What does help me in that relationship is reading the story of Noah and asking three questions. One, what does this story teach me about who God is? Two, what does it teach me about who I am? And who people are. And then three, what does this story teach me about how I can relate to my God in a way that's going to bring clarity and repentance and trust into my life? In this series, those are the questions that we want to ask. And so each week, for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at a story from Scripture that we might or might not already know. And we're going to try to see it with fresh eyes. Who is God here? Who am I? how can I better learn how to be who and what God intends for me to be? So, more stories, more furious. That's the point. What are they and why do we keep telling? Here's where we're going to actually start in week one of the series. With a moment when the people of Israel, the people who gave us these books, with a, mo- a moment when they did exactly the same type of work. The story here is the exodus from Egypt. But the storytellers live in another time and are themselves waiting for a new exodus. So, our question is going to be how does the way that the authors, that the storytellers tell this story that they remember from their history, bring clarity and hope to the situation that they're currently in? All right. All that to say, what I've now set out to do is introduce a series, describe the entirety of the Exodus from Egypt, and also tell you another story about the Israelites who told the story of the Exodus, and then wrap all that up in a way that resonates with you, and I have about um, 19 more minutes. So, it's not going to work. This isn't a good sermon. That's the thing that I have to break (laughs) to you. But, I'm going to do my best, and we're going to begin... With the storytellers, so in a nutshell, this is the history of the Hebrew people as it's presented to us in the Bible. And rush through this: God, God of the universe, once chose a man named Abraham from a place called Ur. You want to put a pin in that for a minute, Ur, and told him to leave his homeland and travel to another place called Canaan. And God told Abraham that although he was childless and advanced in years, he would become the ancestor of a great and blessed people. And so Abraham obeyed God, and in time God gave him a child, and that child's name was Isaac. Isaac himself had children too, Jacob and Esau, and they had children too, including a man named Joseph. And Joseph was hated by his many brothers because he was his father's favorite, and so they did something unkind, and they tricked him and sold him into slavery in the neighboring land of Egypt. However, Joseph was given gifts by God which enabled him to prosper in Egypt, even to the point of becoming an official there underneath the Pharaoh. And then meanwhile, in the land of Canaan, where all of his relatives lived, there was a drought that caused everyone to suffer. And in time, Joseph's brothers came to Egypt looking for aid. And then by providence, the official that they ended up begging for that aid was their own brother, And rather than punish his siblings for what they had done to him, Joseph showed them mercy and he welcomed them into a new country. And then many centuries passed. The descendants of Abraham and Joseph did indeed become a great people, but now they're a great people in the wrong place. And fearing their numbers, the pharaohs of Egypt enslaved them and abused them. And then in time, God hears their cries and he equips a man named Moses to be their rescuer. And Moses delivers the people from Egypt, and this is the first exodus. And then afterwards, after that deliverance, the people wander in the desert for 40 years, but they eventually return to Canaan. And when they're there, God uses them to build a great kingdom. But that kingdom ends up being fraught with selfish rulers, and then it divides into two kingdoms, and it becomes weak. And then, according to the historians of 2 Chronicles, this happens. The Lord the God of their ancestors, sent persistently to them his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord against his people became so great that there was no remedy. And therefore he brought up against them the king of Babylon, who killed their youths with the sword and the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men or young women, the aged or the feeble. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, large and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officials, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons. So these Israelites are enslaved again, and they're exiled from Canaan again. But this time, they're not exiled to just anywhere. They're exiled to a place called Babylon. If you remember to put your pen where I told you to put it, you know that Babylon used to have a different name, and that name was Ur. So they're right back where the story started, the place that their their ancestor Abraham was from. All this time, through this big circle of a story, the people tell the stories of Abraham and Joseph and of Moses and David and all these other figures. And these stories are kept for the people in an oral tradition, along with the other stories of their great heroes and their once great people. But the stories aren't written down anywhere until the people who are exiled in Babylon begin to fear that now that this whole story is gone in a big circle, that these older stories are going to be lost. And thus, these Israelites, exiled in a foreign land and waiting to go home, they're the ones who retell the story of their ancestors in writing who have been similarly exiled and then delivered. So what does all this mean? I think it means that one fruitful way to read the story of the Egyptian exodus is through this lens of the Babylonian exile. Why do these people need this story at this moment? What is that story teaching them? And what can we then read over their shoulders and learn about it for ourselves? So, Now we're going to take a look at how those storytellers tell that story. In the scroll of Exodus 2, the exiled authors write of their ancestors, the Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Their cry for help rose up to God from their slavery. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think a temptation that's facing anybody who is suffering is to believe that God has abandoned them. And that's why they're facing hardship. I think we all tend to do this. We tend to equate God's attention on us with blessing and his absence from us with suffering. We treat God, I think, sometimes like he's the sun. right? If he's shining, we'll know it. But the storytellers of Israel insist on something different. They insist here that God is present in our pain. He's present in our exile. And even more, they suggest that it's worth your time to cry out to Him. It's those cries that God hears that lead to the course of events that they're talking about. Which I think means something to us. It means that you're not going to suffer so quietly and so heroically that God gets impressed by your stoicism, and then comes to your aid. That is not how the story works here. It's okay to express your grief, your anger, and your frustration. And in fact, doing that work, expressing that you're upset, is part of this cycle, that circle that Israel keeps finding itself. And I would argue it's part of a circle that we find ourselves in, too. So cry out, the Israelites do, and then what happens? Well, the storytellers go on to say a man named Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, and he led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, and there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, a fire out of a bush. And he looked, and the bush was blazing, and it was not consumed. And when the Lord saw that he had, I'm sorry, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey to the country of the Canaanites. Now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. This shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." All right. So the same God who hears Israel's cries, then does the next step. He raises the right person up at the right time. Now Moses isn't a heroic warrior, right? This is clear in the story. He's not somebody who's an obvious champion who's just like looking uh, to wave God's flag over his own bright ideas for how he's going to rescue his countrymen. That's not how the story is told. Instead, the story emphasizes that Moses... Is kind of done with Egypt for reasons we won't get into, but you might remember. And he's just kind of minding his own business, tending sheep. And then God finds him and gives him this job, and Moses doesn't want it, which is, again, a curious thing to remember about your ancestor who's like at the center of one of your most important stories, right? Like, we don't tell our own stories in this country that way. Or like, yes, yes, all of those, like George Washington. I guess we kind of do, actually, in Annapolis, right? This is, the, this is an Annapolis thing. Other than George Washington, everybody seems happy to do what they're doing. But you're right, George does stop being a general. I didn't think about that. This is a ramble. We messed up. <laughs> it's curious that they choose to tell the story in this particular way, that Moses doesn't want the job. But God chooses Moses not because of his own obvious strengths. He chooses him in spite of those strengths. Instead, he chooses them for his weaknesses because he intends for those weaknesses to display his own glory. And as I was thinking about this week, and trying to think about that through the lens of those storytellers in Babylon, it occurred to me that in Babylon, among those exiles, there must have been no end of potential insurrectionists looking to be the ones to lead the big rebellion and take everybody home. But our God doesn't bless human efforts. He does, he calls humans to be a part of his efforts. That's a subtle switch, but I think it means quite a bit for us. Because it prompts us to wonder, when we are suffering, do we have the trust that it takes to wait on God to invite us into his plans? Or do we tend to, especially when we're facing hardship, rush our own plans? Because I think the way the Israelites choose to tell the story suggests to us, and probably suggests it to them, that only one of those two options is going to work very well in the end. So then what happens? Well, Moses goes back to Egypt, and he first tells the Hebrew people that God's going to rescue them. He relays God's promise to, quote, "...bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord." But when the people heard this, they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. Now this is another curious detail in the way the story gets told, right? Why do these Israelites hundreds of years later remember the brokenness of their ancestors in the story? What does it teach them? What does it teach us? My hunch is that they remember this brokenness because they feel it themselves too. I think they feel it because it can be easy for them, for the Israelites in Egypt, for us. I think it can be easy and tempting to settle into suffering. To kind of lose hope and just be like, oh, I'm here. Like I'm enduring, right? And that's good enough. I know things could be better hypothetically, but they're not. But I'm worried that if I do anything about it, I'm going to make it worse. <coughs> so let's just kind of survive. And I think the cost of that, that they want to remember, is that, that that takes away hope, right? To believe that enduring whatever you're going through is good enough. But Moses does what God tells him to do anyway, despite the resistance of the Hebrews. And after its ten increasingly awful plagues, which you might remember, I, if well, never mind, there was a joke there, but we're going to cut it. The Pharaoh, instead the Pharaoh, after those plagues, he relents, he lets the Hebrews go. But once they're gone, he changes his mind, he sets off to bring them back. And then in Exodus 14, we read this. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, and this is my favorite line in the story, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? But Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. I love the people's response was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die? From their perspective, God's plan of deliverance feels worse than their slavery. It is dangerous and scary, and it feels uncertain. And Pharaoh is the greatest power they've ever known or imagined until this (laughs) moment. And I wonder if for the children born centuries later, in exile in Babylon, I wonder if that feeling might have also felt familiar. 20 years, 30 years, 40 years into into living in a foreign land. The people who actually were captured are all dead at this point, right? Like it's just their kids. And you gotta wonder, is like grandpa's telling the stories of Canaan if like grandkids are like, who cares anymore, dad? Like, we're not going back there. I have Babylonian friends. This is like where we're at now. I can't help but wonder if the Holy Spirit is leading the storytellers here to emphasize this part of the Exodus narrative in particular because it is what they needed to hear, too. That God knows that that place where you settle, you settle because you're afraid. He knows that all of us have this capacity to adapt to even the worst possible situations. But God has better plans for us, and those plans might not always seem better. It might even involve continued hardship. And whether it's helpful or hurtful to hear this, it seems like the best thing for you to do is to keep still. And trust that he will fight for us, and that he will do the things that he has intended to do, and that we don't have to prove anything to him. He loves us already, even in our cowardice, even in our fear even in our hurt and our anger and our frustration. So you probably know what happens next in the story, right? God parts the Red Sea. It's a big dramatic moment. The Hebrews walk safely across. He delivers them from Egypt. He cares for them. He takes them to a place where he can give them the law. He builds for them a kingdom. He renews the covenant that had been broken. And then when they break it, he renews it again and again again. And what the storytellers are seeing, I think, and what they're sharing is that God is present in our hardships, that he will raise the right people at the right time, and in the meantime, don't settle into suffering, even though it is tempting to do so, but remember that you are loved already and that God will fight for his promises. And yes, if all that's true, if all those are things we can see in this story, it is still important, for us to remember the record of the event of the Exodus. It's Israel's history, and history matters. But the story of the Exodus, when re-experienced in difficult moments, has the capacity not just to remind you of a thing that happened, but to spark hope in people who are weary from waiting. So the question is, all right, well, what happens to them, right? Maybe some of you are curious. Do they live in exile in Babylon forever? No. Right? Here's something that other storytellers eventually tell us about those storytellers. They write, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also in writing, saying, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Let any of those among you who are of his people, may the Lord their God be with them go. So the exiles in Babylon end up not needing a Moses, or an army, or even a rebellion. What happens is God speaks to the king, the king listens, and he listens to the home. Moreover, he gives them money when they leave and resources so they can go home and specifically undo the damage that his own ancestors have done to that house and to rebuild their temple there. And so the Israelites leave exile in Babylon to go back to Canaan. The temple is rebuilt, the covenant is remade again, as it always is. And God does all of that. The point of all this isn't that this Exodus story happened. Can you see how small a takeaway it would be to just say it happened? Nor is the point that the Exodus story somehow predicts the thing that's going to happen to the Israelites when they're in exile or it's going to somehow predict whatever's going to happen to us in our own lives. The point of the whole thing is that God has chosen to love you, and he will keep rebuilding his relationship with you time and time again. And what he asks for as he's doing all of that work isn't for your stoic silence when you're suffering, that you be like somehow holy and noble when things are tough. He's not asking for your heroic resistance as you like raise armies of your own making to try and like, fight to do whatever it is you think he wants you to do. He's not even asking yet for legalistic devotion to the law because the Israelites in Egypt don't even have it. All of those things are going to have their own places in the story, to be sure. But primarily, originally, <clears throat> mythically, what God asks for and what he has earned is our trust. Our trust. So, We'll wrap up. What can we get from reading either of these stories or even from reading them together? Other than learning that, hi, this is what happens when I'm out of town for a week. Like, you get like four sermons and one sermon, it's bad. (laughs) I think what we can get is we can be inspired to look around ourselves and ask, where am I settling into hardship? Where am I letting cynicism or a false sense of piousness stop me from crying out to God? or even to stop me from believing that God cares. And what would change if I truly believed that God already sees me and already loves me, that he's going to work out the story for the sake of keeping his own promises, and that it might not look like what I want it to look like, but that God is good, and that he will work out good in this bigger story. I'll put this in our own terms God loves the people of this city and he cares about their hardships of which there are many and God has invited us as his people not to be the heroes of Annapolis but to be storytellers and to be flame keepers are we people who cry out against injustice as the Israelites did are we people who believe that God cares about us and about our neighbors? And if we do believe that, how can we show that care? How can we share that hope? I think the answer is what you already know that it is. The answer is that we listen like God listens to people. And we show compassion to people always. We talk to our neighbors We live honestly and vulnerably here with each other. We do justice, we love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And maybe this church lives for 50 more years, or maybe this is our last one. But whatever time we have, we can tell and we can live out stories of God it takes courage and it takes humility to do that. It takes trust and generosity. But it's worth it for the simple reason that the story is true. And it keeps going. And no exile lasts forever. And God's promises are always, always going to be kept.